This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country. Our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, so in A Midsummer Night's Dream, William Shakespeare famously wrote, The Course of True Love Never Did Run Smooth. Yep. Today's topic delves into the story of a man who completely gave up on the idea of love in that very romanticized sense. And instead, he set about cultivating the perfect wife. Uh, it is not horror in the Bride of Frankenstein sense. He didn't build a wife from scraps. But it does involve some really, truly unsettling ideas and behaviors. Uh, Englishman Thomas Day's image in history is generally a pretty positive one. He was an 18th century abolitionist who co-wrote the poem The Dying Negro and also penned the anti-slavery narrative, The History of Sanford and Merton. But there is a troubling section of Day's life in which he completely changed the courses of two young women's lives through a cruel and ill-conceived social experiment. Uh, heads up, this episode includes abuse that is perpetrated by an adult man on a preteen and then teenage girl. And this abuse is not sexual in nature, but it is incredibly cruel. So if you have sensitivities to hearing about such things, this might be one to skip. If you think you might be okay with it, but you aren't really certain... Uh, we will give you a heads up before we get into the really, really cruel aspects of the story. I will tell you that as I was working on the research for this, I became and have stayed mad as hornets. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, I don't remember the last time I was so angry at a historical oh, subject. Oh, man. And that's, I mean, Singer is going to come out of this looking not so bad by comparison. Yeah, you've, you've picked some winners recently. I really do not mean to be doing a series on history's jerks <laughs> right but i accidentally did uh well we also we get a lot of uh notes when we especially when we promote stuff on our facebook and our twitter we get notes from parents asking 
uh, something along the lines of, would this be okay for mice? However many year old we normally listen together. Uh, and I'm going to say this might be a good one to pre-listen first because it's really hard to judge. Yeah. Like the cruel things are not super graphic in nature. Like I said, they're not sexual in nature, but they are incredibly mean. Um, really sort of cruel. And one would say sadistic, except apparently this person didn't take pleasure in it, but felt that there was a very direct point to what he was doing. Uh, so yeah, we'll get there. It's not the most fun ride. It is, uh, interesting and it, it brings up some, some important concepts that deserve a little bit of a look. So we will get into all of that, uh, talking about Thomas Day and his quest for the perfect wife. He was born into wealth on June 22nd, 1748, and his mother Jane was from a wealthy merchant family. His father was a government official who worked as a collector of export taxes and also had quite significant real estate holdings. Yeah, their family was incredibly well off. Uh, and Thomas's father, who was significantly older than his mother Jane, died when Thomas was just a year old. And with his father's passing, Thomas inherited a significant trust that would vest on his 21st birthday. So he was basically set for life. He never had to work if he didn't want to. Thomas's father had also left money to more than 150 other people, from friends and family all the way down to the people who rented homes from him. This gesture really left Thomas Day with a legacy to live up to, one of using this great wealth that he had at his disposal to assist people who were in need. And Jane and her son Thomas moved north of London after Thomas Sr., that his father's name had also been Thomas, uh, died. And Jane eventually remarried to another man named Thomas, this one Thomas Phillips, who was one of the executors of her husband's will. Uh, Thomas Day, the son, was devoted to his mother, and he considered her to really be an ideal woman. She was very smart, she was very strong, and she was entirely able to take care of herself. Thomas went on to attend boarding school where he did very well. And it was there that he made a lifelong friend in John Bicknell. This is also where Day's proclivity for going on to diatribes really started to blossom. He would talk at great length about his admiration for stoicism, his distrust of romance, and his desire to mold himself into the most virtuous man. He loved to talk. He really did. Every biography of him goes on about how he would just talk and talk and talk. It it immediately calls to mind people from my past. Me too. Right? <laughs> uh, you can imagine how popular this trait made him. Yeah, he had some friends, but there was definitely a sense in in the various things that I read about him that some people found it sort of amusing and something they could tolerate, and others were like, oh, no, Thomas Day, I'm not going to hang out with that. And while some of his philosophical views were very modern and progressive at the time, his thoughts on women were downright archaic. Women, to his mind, were inherently inferior and weak, both physically and intellectually, and they needed someone like him to protect them, even in cases where they claimed they did not want that at all. Along these same lines, he started developing a theoretical ideal of the perfect woman. The ideal specimen, he thought, would be pure, strong, simple, fearless, unpretentious, above frivolity, and above fussy tastes, 
and most important of all, entirely obedient and subservient to her master and teacher, Thomas Day. Bless his heart. Except yuck. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's very... I feel like he is the, like, like, let's just distill all of the societal expectations about women. Just, just still, distill it all, all into a human form. Mm-hmm. And there we go. Yeah. Uh, so he would meet young women and sometimes begin to take an interest in them, but invariably he would find them flawed. And usually this was because they did not like him back. Uh, he would, in his writing, then often refer to these women in really aggressively negative terms. There was one woman that spurned him that he thereafter referred to as a toad. And uh, another woman that apparently broke his heart that he only referred to as the B word in his writing thereafter. He had some aggression issues. At the same time. Uh, the work of Rousseau was having a profound impact on Thomas Day's worldview. Rousseau's writing, particularly Emile or on education, asserted that children are born inherently good, and it is only in passing into social constructs that evil is introduced into the otherwise completely benevolent human nature. Uh, this work is was also it, it, it skewed traditional ideas of religion. Which got it banned in Rousseau's home country. Yeah, it was quite a controversial work, but it was very popular with uh, Thomas Day and his his friends and many of the the sort of educated, wealthy classes of the the day that felt that they were very progressive. Uh, and it really started a lot of interesting conversations about education and how children should be reared. And in spring of 1768, Thomas met a young woman named Margaret Edgeworth, the younger sister of his friend Richard Edgeworth, while Thomas was traveling in Ireland. And Margaret was, by all accounts, a lovely young woman at 22. She was attractive, but she was also very smart and very capable. Uh, Things that Thomas claimed he would want in a lady. Uh, But she and Thomas, who tended to be kind of sloppy himself and really lacked much in the way of charm, did not exactly have spectacular chemistry. As they started to spend more time together, though, Thomas and Margaret slowly became friends. They started to appreciate each other's unique personalities. And one thing that the two of them had in common was that neither of them was harboring any illusions about romantic love. Both of them had been in relationships that ended badly. So they were a lot more practical about it. Yeah. And by late summer of that year, the two had struck a deal that really sounds like the way a lot of modern rom-coms start, which is that if neither of them had found someone over the course of the following year, then they would marry one another. But as Autumn arrived, uh, Margaret confessed that over that summer, she had really developed some very real feelings for Thomas. So the pair agreed that they were going to be married the following summer. And at that point, Day returned to London. He was going to study law for a little bit and prepare for the wedding. That winter, Day lived with his friend John Bicknell, and he fell in with Erasmus Darwin and his circle of friends in the Lunar Society, which is another thing that could be a whole episode on its own. Yeah, if you don't recognize that name, Erasmus Darwin was Charles Darwin's grandfather. Uh, but at this point, he was a, a scientifically interested young gent uh, hanging out with all of his cool friends. Uh, but in spring of 1769, that plan that Thomas and Margaret had put together was abruptly halted when Margaret wrote him to say that she had, in fact, reconsidered and she was going to call the wedding off. And Day was, of course, sad and 
terribly embarrassed. But this setback in his quest to be married, because he really did want to be married, resulted in a plan for a project. I just want to interject that people are not projects, but before... (laughs) Oh, we have so much to get angry about. I know. I know. Well, and I'm just remembering this all, this whole thing just reminds me of college in so many ways. Yeah, me too. And, and I'm remembering the time that, you know, the dorm would have uh events and one of the events was one of the counselors who came to talk to us about relationships and she just was like, I'm just going to tell you a few things that you need to understand and absorb into your heart <laughs> and your mind. She was like, people are not projects. We were all like... <laughs> Okay. And of course, 20 some odd years later, I'm like, yep, people are not projects. We're going to talk about somebody who tried to make people projects after a word from sponsor. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. So to get back to the story, in truth, this idea that Thomas Day had at this point was not entirely new. It's one that he had been kicking around for a while based on his study of Rousseau's writing about natural education. So he began to wonder what would happen if a child were reared entirely outside of the corruption of society's trappings. And if one were to raise a girl this way, couldn't the perfect wife essentially be carefully molded? All of this happened just before Thomas's 21st birthday. So as he was committing to this plan, he was also coming into his quite large fortune, which meant that he had the freedom to pursue his idea, knowing that there could be some legal issues to wrangle regarding regarding the idea of taking on a ward to raise in the unconventional way that he was planning. He enlisted the help of Bicknell, who at that point had studied law for eight years. So to find a girl who was innocent, healthy, and free from any pesky familial ties, 
Day and Bicknell traveled north from London to Shrewsbury in Shropshire to an orphan hospital where Day would select the girl to be cultivated into his eventual wife. These two young men who showed up claiming to be lawyers looking for a maid for a married friend. Edgeworth was actually named as apprentice master without his knowledge in this scheme were welcomed at the orphanage and all the girls lined up to see if they would be selected. The facility, the facility did their best to screen prospective situations and place children in agreeable and safe homes, but they were completely duped by these two men. Yeah, I mean, these two guys that are, you know, well-dressed show up and say that they're lawyers and that they're doing this thing and they want to place children. And of course, that yes, you seem lovely. You're fabulous gentlemen. Uh, Thomas was overwhelmed at trying to select one of the girls. But Bicknell pointed out a 12-year-old with auburn hair and brown eyes named Anne Kingston. The orphanage approved her placement as a maid for the next nine years or until she married, whichever came first. While Day did introduce Anne to Edgeworth, and Edgeworth, trusting his friend, seemed okay with having been named as the caretaker of this girl, this young woman didn't actually move into Edgeworth's home, as had been part of that legal arrangement. Right. Uh, instead, into a room rented by Day, which was separate from his own lodgings. And he started tutoring her immediately. And Anne, who had no idea what was going on, but had been trained throughout her years as an orphan, she had been in the orphanage since she was just a baby, to be obedient, completely went along with Day's lessons, and she seemed eager to learn. He also renamed her Sabrina, and he was very enthusiastic about how things were going initially, but apparently he still had doubts about whether his plan to create the ideal wife would work. His solution was to adopt a second girl as a backup in case the first one did not work out. So just a month after taking on Sabrina, he once again went to an orphanage, this time one that was in London, allegedly to select a maid for a married friend, this time choosing an 11-year-old girl named Dorcas Carr. She was fair and she was much more outgoing than Sabrina. He changed her name to Lucretia. And in a document drawn up by Bicknell, Thomas Day agreed that he would select the more promising of his two young potential brides within a year, and that the girl he did not select would be set up in an apprenticeship with an allowance and a dowry should she marry. There is actually debate over this particular document and whether or not it was actually part of the the legal workings that Bicknell did in order for these adoptions to happen. But that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny because then either of those those places he adopted from would know he had adopted two girls with this weird plan. Uh, so it seems much more like this was an agreement that was made like within their social circle. So everyone could hold him to this experiment that he was doing. This whole plan, we should point out, was 100 percent illegal in addition to being distasteful and creepy. I feel like we're in the middle of an accidental miniseries of creepers in history. Yeah. Not only was he basically abducting these two girls through false pretenses, he changed their names, making them almost impossible for any authorities to track down. And then he shut them away altogether without supervision when he wasn't there to tutor them. Yeah, he basically, the rooms that he had found were like a a boarding room that he rented from an elderly widow. And she was apparently around, but not really involved with the girls. And so they were like two little girls left by themselves all the time when this weird guy wasn't showing up to teach them, which is a terrible life for a child to have. 
Uh, here is p- one of the new places where I will get super angry. His friends knew about this crap. They all knew about it. I think that's the strongest word we've ever said in the podcast. I want to say way stronger <laughs> words because it makes me super angry. Like there is some really gross, complicit behavior going on here. While these girls were completely unclear as to what was going on, Bicknell and other friends of Day all knew about this experiment and no one stepped in. They all saw Day as this highly moral, though very odd man who was trying something really, really unique. And this all speaks to the attitude of privilege that wealthy aristocrats had at the time. So while Day claimed to disdain titles and social hierarchy, it was that exact structure that was enabling him to do what he was doing. I am a wealthy man who is educated, so my ideas must be interesting and valid, even if they are horrible and abusive. Holly's real mad at this guy. (laughs) I... I was mostly thinking how it's like another layer of societal expectations distilled down into human form. It's like he's almost a caricature of entitlement. Oh, completely. And grossness. Completely. Uh, Soon he moved to Paris so they would be out of the influence of London. He thought about keeping these girls in in a country where they couldn't speak with anyone so that that could help maintain their social purity I'm kind of baffled that Paris was the place he decided to go to, given the reputation of Paris. Well, he had never been, yeah, and it didn't last. Okay, sure. So he eventually took Sabrina and Lucretia to Avignon. And Day seemed to love Avignon initially, and he was seen by the locals as this odd but sort of interesting scholar. They, of course, did not know what he was up to. And he found their acceptance of him quite intoxicating, because remember, he was sort of an odd guy. He wasn't, like, the best dressed. He wasn't really all that charming. But they found him oddly charming, because he just seemed like this odd, bumbling scholar to them. Uh, but his charm with Avignon would wear off quickly. Uh, he did not include many mentions of the girls in his early correspondence at this time, though. It almost reads as though he is so excited at being socially accepted, he kind of forgot about them for a little bit. However, he did instruct the two ladies in reading. He seeded the idea that luxury and fashion and social status were all abhorrent and that an austere life was far superior to any of that. He was generally very pleased with their progress initially, and he was really starting to believe that his plan to mold them into ideal wives was working. But Thomas, it turned out, hated the French, uh, particularly French women, at which point I wrote in my notes, kill surprise. <laughs> Uh, he thought that they were all stupid imbeciles and that they would be bad influences, just as he had thought Londoners would be. He felt as though French women were far too dominant over their male counterparts, and so the entire country became completely distasteful to him. Meanwhile, the girls, uh, they were going kind of stir-crazy. They didn't speak French because he had made every effort to keep them from learning it. So they had no social interaction outside of the three of them. And while the two girls got along, it was still very socially uh, isolating. Yeah, the his friends that wrote about this time, some of them talk about the girls bickering and others do not. There's definitely some embellishment that goes on that makes some of the accounts of this time, which are pretty much all written by other people uh, that were not there, a little bit hard to sort through and find out what was really going on. But uh, Day, unsurprisingly, was really not good at taking care of children. 
Uh, he once took them out on a boat, which capsized, at which point things became really perilous because neither of the girls could swim. And the currents of the Rhone, which is where they were, threatened to carry them away. And Thomas was a good swimmer. He was able to swim. He managed to collect both Sabrina and Lucretia. But the whole ordeal, ordeal was really frightening and upsetting. On another occasion, Day threatened a French officer and challenged the man to a duel because he believed that this officer had been too familiar with the young ladies when they were out walking. Fortunately for Day, this French gentleman made it clear that he had intended no offense and he did not accept the challenge. Yeah, I couldn't find a clear, like, account of what exactly had transpired if he had just said bonjour and Day thought that was gross that he'd... uh, address them at all. I was just, I'm not sure what exactly had happened there, but it's good that he didn't take him up on the duel because French dueling rules at the time were to the death. Could have gone very, very poorly. Uh, one account by a friend of Thomas Day cl- also claimed that the girls caught smallpox, requiring Day to care for them around the clock, which he allegedly found irritating. But that isn't really documented. Uh, and Lucretia definitely looking at her records from the orphanage had been inoculated and Sabrina almost definitely had as well. There's no record of it, but that was standard practice at orphanages at the time. Eight months into the France phase of this experiment, Thomas gave up on raising the girls in a foreign country and went back to London and he had to decide which of the girls to cut loose. Sabrina's devotion to him was what was winning out in that decision. Yeah, Day grew incredibly frustrated with Lucretia. While he couldn't decide if she was just being very stubborn or very stupid uh, in that she didn't always go along with all of his lesson plans, he just didn't care. So he got rid of her by handing her off to a London milliner as an apprentice, along with what was a very significant sum in the 1700s of 400 pounds. Uh, Lucretia eventually married a linen draper that she met while she was working there. And according to the writings of his friend Edgeworth, was quite happy. And that's kind of where we lose the thread of what happened to Lucretia. Before we talk about what happened to Sabrina, once Day had abandoned Lucretia, we will take a break and have a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done and they are ready 
curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These restless ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. So getting back to Thomas Day, and at this point his one remaining uh, charge, Sabrina, he still had high hopes for her. She was growing into a really lovely young woman, and he moved the two of them to Litchfield near his friend Erasmus Darwin so that he could continue her education. He decided that the next phase of her training required that she be toughened up so she could become the stoic woman that he had always dreamed of. And this is where things are going to become really abusive. So here's your heads up if you might need to be out at this point. Yeah, no one will judge you. It's really awful behavior. Uh, he started issuing a series of pain endurance tests. So poor Sabrina was instructed to bare her shoulders and roll up her sleeves. And then after Day told her that she must not move or cry, he poured hot sealing wax on her arms and shoulders. And of course, she jumped and cried out, which frustrated him. But he continued this over and over, slowly conditioning her to accept pain. Uh, he did the same experiment as well, but pricking her with needles. He forced her into a nearby lake, fully clothed, until she was in water up to her chin. And after the whole incident with the capsized boat where she had almost been swept away, she had been really afraid of the water. So this was already torment. But then he made her lie down in the grass in her drenched clothing to dry out very slowly. That would subject her to the varying temperatures and that whole drying out process to try to make her body hardy. She was also uh, taken on occasion out to a secluded spot and instructed to stand perfectly still while Day fired his pistol into her skirts. He was doing this allegedly to make her immune to being startled at loud noises. This is another one of those things that um, when you read the accounts that his friends wrote, you get really, really mad at all of them if you are Holly, because some of them are like, oh, well, they weren't even loaded. And others are like, oh, no, there were there was shot in the, in that pistol. This is like a metaphor for the <laughs> Internet. It really is. OK, he even gave her a box filled with fine clothing and then made this poor young woman who had never been given any but the simplest garments to wear, throw all the new garments into the fire and watch while they burned up. Yeah. Uh, he also told her that he was in danger and he said that this danger would become far worse if she told anyone. And he saw this as a way to test her. And he became disappointed when she went to the servant of a neighbor's house and disclosed the information. There's speculation about whether or not she was just being a blabbermouth or whether she was concerned and trying to get help. She certainly didn't share any of the other horrible secrets with this servant. So it seemed like she was probably trying to get help. As time went on, it became apparent that she really wasn't excited by science or books. So Day started to get increasingly frustrated with her. She was having to go through this endless cycle of lessons and tortures with no explanation as to why any of it was happening to her. And that was all starting to really take a toll on this young woman. 
Through the entire ordeal, she had no idea that she was going to be expected to marry Thomas Day at the end of her education. Additionally, Sabrina was nearly 14 at this point, and having a young woman with no family living in a house with a bachelor was starting to look really seedy to pretty much everyone. Uh, and so at the beginning of 1771, Thomas, who had grown tired of her not enjoying science and apparently not being strong enough to withstand all of his tests easily, decided that his experiment was a failure. But of course, this was not his failure except insofar as he had clearly selected the wrong girl for training. Sabrina was sent to boarding school where she became a really diligent student. And once she graduated, she was given a regular living allowance by day. She's almost universally described as a lovely young woman and incredibly well-liked. So it seems as though this awful treatment as his ward didn't wind up hindering her social development. Uh, almost immediately after sending Sabrina away, Day did find a woman who he felt met all of his needs. And that was the writer Honora Snaid. And of course, by virtue of the fact that she was very strong, very smart, had a mind of her own, she did not want to be with a man like Thomas Day who felt that she had to capitulate to him. She, in fact, ended up married to his friend Edgeworth, who got married a lot of times. Next, he fixated on her sister Elizabeth, who thought she might be willing to marry Day if he was willing to learn some manners and correct some of his own defects. And surprisingly, he agreed. He traveled to Lyon, where he took fencing and dancing lessons, and he even submitted to a torturous-sounding contraption that was designed to correct his knock knees by forcing them outward. Yeah, he had to sit in this weird chair and have these screws applied that were supposed to shift his legs to a, a more proper position, and he would just sit there for hours on end reading, apparently. But after all of this, when he returned from France, Elizabeth was not into him. Uh, she also ended up married to Edgeworth uh, after her sister had passed away. He really did. He, I think Edgeworth had four wives over the course of his life and something like 22 children. But he seemed like a fairly jovial fellow that ladies liked. And he was not so creepy, maybe. In 1774, they met wool heiress Esther Milnes, who fell in love with him at first sight. His poem, The Dying Negro, had been published the previous year, and Esther, who had a long line of potential suitors clamoring for attention, fixated on this man whose political and social ideas she felt really closely matched her own. Yeah, she, uh, it's one of those things, I mean, I'm sure you've had this happen where you have a friend that's kind of a persnickety pain in the tuchus, and they meet someone and that person just thinks they're the most amazing creature on earth. I, there's an image in my head right now. Yeah, and it's fascinating to watch that play out, and that's exactly what it is with Esther. She was just full of incredible praise for him. And it's like she saw his flaws but still thought he was amazing. Uh, and after several years of day debating whether Esther was truly right for him, which, go figure. I mean, again, this is like one of the most desired women of their society at the time going, nope, you're the one for me. And he's like, I don't know. Um, it, it's just fascinating to me. Uh, but he decided that finally that she was the woman for him and the pair married in 1778. And the irony, of course, here was that Esther came from everything that Day hated. She was a woman of wealth. She had been raised in society. She had been formally educated in the system that he believed could only corrupt women. And yet she 
did meet all of his requirements pretty much, and she was perfectly happy to live an isolated life of the mind with him. He just wanted them to live far away from everyone else and do nothing but read. As the 1780s arrived, Day was really throwing himself pretty fully into social and political matters. The first volume of Sanford and Merton was published in 1783. I'm about to introduce a surprising twist, which is that in 1784, Sabrina married Day's best friend, John Bicknell. Day paid her dowry at this point. Uh, and in the period leading up to the wedding, Bicknell confessed to Sabrina that she had been Day's experiment in bridal education and that he, John Bicknell, had been complicit in this scheme. So it was sort of like a, a confession of laying all of his cards on the table before they got married. And doing so seemed to save Bicknell from Sabrina's wrath, but she wrote a really angry letter to Day demanding that he explain himself. In response to Sabrina, they wrote, quote, I never thought I had a right to sacrifice another being to my own good or pleasure, but I thought myself sufficiently entitled to make an experiment where, where whatever else ensued, you would be placed in circumstances infinitely more favorable to happiness than before. He also made it clear to her that the failing of the experiment was her fault, writing, quote, the dislike you soon discovered for every species of domestic application was one of the first causes of dispute between us. What a jerk. Yeah. Just, oh. Uh, again, it's like he kind of sees her as property, like, oh, I adopted a poor orphan so I could abuse it because eventually I would. It would be in better situation than being an orphan, surely. It's just, it's so entitled and gross. Uh, he also in that writing managed to get in a really gross dig, uh, in the matter of Sabrina's marriage to Bicknell, telling her that she should consider herself extraordinarily lucky that John would want to marry her rather than quote, a hundred others your superior. John Bicknell died in 1787, leaving Sabrina a widow with two children, and they reinstated an allowance for her, but much smaller than he had been paying before her marriage. She took a a job as a housekeeper at a village school to try to make ends meet, and eventually one of Bicknell's friends created a fund for Sabrina and the children out of contributions from John's many law associates. Yeah, John, even though he had come from a good family and had a good job, he had had some problems handling money and some gambling issues. And so there really was not much left when he passed away. Uh, and then just two years after this in 1789, at the age of 41, Thomas Day died suddenly when he was thrown from a horse. Uh, he had raised the animal, but had refused to train it in any traditional sense because he thought that was a form of cruelty, but he still attempted to ride it, which he did not think was a form of cruelty. I have a question. Yes. Why was it cruel to train a horse, but it was not cruel to train a woman? Because he's Thomas Day and he had some twisted ideas about ladies and how to treat human beings. And apparently horses have more feelings than women do. It seems that way in his view. So after he died... Esther continued Sabrina's allowance, and the Sabrina issue was one that apparently had come up in quarrels between the two of them. So Esther recognized that Sabrina's misfortunes had not been any fault of her own. Yeah, though her writing about it, it's kind of weird because she, again, Esther was in love with Thomas for all of his faults. And so in her eyes, Sabrina really missed out on being with this amazing person. (laughs) 
everyone in this story is so gross, Holly. They just have such a weird view of humans and people that are not part of their wealthy little clique. It's very strange. Uh, Sabrina lived out the rest of her life in relative anonymity, working for most of it as a housekeeper in a boys' school. Uh, she died in September 1843 at the age of 86. There had been several times throughout her life where she was a little concerned that all of this was going to come to light. Many of his friends wrote about him. You know, he kind of became... uh one of those figures that gets romanticized because he died so young and because he did write several important abolitionist texts. And so she was perpetually very afraid that they were going to out her, that they would write memoirs about him and then talk about this thing and that her honor was really going to get called into question, even though by all accounts there was no sexual relationship between the two of them. She still recognized that it it would invite that kind of speculation. And she was really worried because she had kids at that point. And even when they were young men and adults, she just didn't want them to ever have to go through knowing that this kind of ugly chapter was part of their family's life. There were a lot of close calls, but none of those seemed to come to fruition. So angry at everyone in this story. Me too. You see why I said I was mad at hornets the whole yep. time? Yep, 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 yep. Do you have some listener mail that will not make us angry? Not only that, I have one that's a surprise for you. What? Because Tracy's in the studio this week. She's visiting Atlanta from uh-huh. Boston. Uh-huh. And so one of them I kept, and it's to make you smile. So you can't look at that okay. one yet. Okay, my eyes are shut. Uh, well, you can. I'm reading another one first. Okay. They're both... Uh, Postcards, sort of. Uh, the first one is a postcard from our listener, Elizabeth, and it is a postcard from the Crescent Hotel at Eureka Springs. She says, Thank for, thanks for your show on Eureka Springs. My husband and I are both long-time, long-time fans, and we re- re-listened to the tragic tale of Dr. Baker before honeymooning here. We have seen no ghosts, but we have met Casper, the hotel's lovely cat. Oh, so kitty. congratulations. I hope you had a wonderful wedding and honeymoon, and thank you for telling us about Casper. Okay, and the next one, hold on, i got to get it out quietly and carefully here because my eyes are closed. It is amazing. It is from our listener, Crystal. She painted it herself and it is um, an image that she painted of what I presume is a rock band, Margie and the Love Bond Tintometer Boys. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it is, uh, she has a little note on the back. Tracy's holding it now. That's amazing. With Margie Margarine. And Olio, and like this amazing, it's the cutest That's postcard so ever. So she, she hand painted this postcard. Oh man. Um, and it's really, really awesome. Uh, the boys are named, I think it's Maslow, which, uh, Google is telling me is butter in Czech and Olio. And it's just adorable. We will for sure share it because it is the cutest thing you have ever seen. And it reminds me of the old, you probably did not see this or maybe you did. Uh, in Epcot, there used to be a stage show called Food Rocks, where food would come out and sing rock and roll songs about nutrition. Uh, and it reminds me of that. <laughs> it reminds me of that. That was not there the one time I have ever been to Epcot, which was with you. Oh, yeah, yeah. It would have been gone already. Uh, yeah, so it's spectacular. And she did it in pink tones because of pink margarine. So good. I love it so much. I knew you would freak out with glee Aww. when you saw this because it's the cutest thing on earth. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Crystal. It is absolutely beautiful. She wrote us a, a letter as well, but I'm not going to read it all uh, because we have run a little bit long. She loves cats, and she used some awesome washi tape on this. So thank you, thank you.
thank you, thank you. I again, I just love it. It's darling, and it made us smile. So I saved it for the end of the horrible episode. <laughs> We will have to talk about it extra times on social media for anybody who got to a point in this episode where they're like, I'm out. I can't listen to this. So angry making. Uh, If you would like to write to us and talk about how angry you are at Thomas Day or about uh, how awesome margarine rock bands might be, you can do that at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. If you want to meet up with us on social media, you can do that almost anywhere we're always missed in history. So that's, uh, at Twitter is at missed in history at facebook.com slash missed in history at pinterest.com slash missed in history at missed in history and on Instagram at missed in history where this beautiful painting is definitely going. Uh, if you would like to come to our parent site, which is how stuff works, you could, uh, type in the word marriage in the search bar and you will get lots of articles about marriage, none of which involve Adopting an orphan under false pretenses and doing horrible things to them, but actually having a marriage. Uh, you can do that there. You can visit us at mistinhistory.com where we have show notes for all of our episodes that Tracy and I have worked on, as well as an archive of every episode of the show that there has ever been. Uh, and you should absolutely come and visit us at mistinhistory and howstuffworks.com. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.